This morning, we're on Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Let's hear the Word of God together. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So I'm looking at this verse this morning, and I want to scratch the surface of the verse with you this morning, because whenever we handle Scripture, of course, we're reminded that every word in Scripture has been inspired by the Holy Spirit and is the Holy Spirit's word to the church. Every word. So we take the details seriously because the details matter. Here is the writer to this book, and he's doing what every minister should do. He is now completing his work with a benediction, gathering together a great prayer for the people whom he's been teaching. William Googe, one of the great Puritans, says this prayer, this kind of prayer, is the means of obtaining all manner of good things, not for ourselves only, but for others also. And we can see that in this prayer as he seeks all manner of good things for himself and for others. It's a vital part of a minister's function that they should pray earnestly and frequently both in public and in private for their people. And this, this is one man who does precisely that. But before we look at his prayer, what I want to do as we scratch the surface of this text this morning is to look at the one to whom he prays. And you can see that in this text, we have a, a, a title of God here. Now may, he says. So he's asking that God may do something, that God may act in a particular way on behalf of his people. But, but he roots what he wants from God in the character of God. Now may the God of peace, he says. May the God of peace. This phrase, this title, the God of peace, is used by the Apostle Paul several times in Paul's writings. He talks in Romans, for example, may the God of peace be with you. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Or in Philippians and 1 Thessalonians, may the God of peace himself sanctify you and be with you. So this is a, this is a title that's used several times in the New Testament. It describes God as being at peace in himself. We can think of this, this, this description or this title being attributed to God absolutely. The one God there is, is the God of peace. We can think of this, this, this title being used of God relatively. That is in relation to the persons of the Holy Trinity. So you have the peace of God the Father. You have the Lord Jesus who is the Prince of Peace. And you have the Holy Spirit who is the Spirit of Peace and who grows peace in the hearts of believers. The fruit of the Spirit is, among other things, 
peace. So peace belongs to God, to God the triune God, to God the one God, and is not the preserve of any one particular person within the Trinity. It belongs to the nature of God, to be the God of peace. And he who is peace, he, this one who is perfectly at one in himself. In other words, this God with whom there, there are no tensions within this God. There's no rivalry within God. There are no degrees of authority within God. God is one, and he is the God of peace. This God is the God who when it comes to things outside of himself, that is, in created, the created order, this is the God who delights to make peace. This is the God who blesses those who are peacemakers. This is the God who likes to make of two, one. The God who delights to knit together that which was torn apart, This is the God who is in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Why should we talk about the God of peace this morning? It is because the world in which we live does not know peace. Since the time of the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, since sin entered the world, we have not been as as a universe, or as creatures, and in particular as human beings, we have not known peace. Everything has been disrupted, derailed, disordered, disfigured by the outbreak of sin in our first parents. No peace was left in creation. Isaiah the prophet says, says it like this, There is no peace, says my Lord, for the wicked. No spring or cause of peace. Instead, there is hostility. There is hostility within families, between families. There is hostility between spouses and siblings. There is no peace between political parties and between nations, in every, there's, there is a war and dispeace in every station and stage of life. There's no peace of mind and heart. Our hearts are restless. There's no peace even in the heavenly realms, that is, in the realms that God created, the spiritual realms. Because as we read in Revelation chapter 12, war broke out in heaven. That is in the heavenly places. War broke out in heaven. As angels fell into rebellion and, and were in conflict with the angels who remained faithful to God, there is war in heaven. And there is war on earth. They brought the war in heaven down, crashing into our sphere in which we find ourselves today. No peace. Isaiah says in Isaiah 59, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters 
toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. You can see the rupture, the movement. The wicked are in a raging sea. Everything, everything is up for grabs. Nothing is still. Nothing is at rest anywhere. Now, what, is, what does Isaiah mean when he talks about the wicked? The wicked is a category that the prophet uses to describe people. It's not the, the category that describes everyone as equally bad in every aspect of their life. No, the wicked is a category for those who are at war with God. That is, they're in rebellion against God. In their hearts, in their minds, in their wills, they're rebellious against the God who made them. That's, that's just the reality. For we all are, at one level or another. So what is the state of affairs today? The state of affairs as we meet this morning is that as a result of the fall, as a result of the first transgression of our parents, there was and is discord, disunion between humans and God, between individual people in our own conscience. This is the reality of life as we know it. But then into this, we speak these words, the God of peace, the God of peace. He comes to his people and he reassures them, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear dull that it cannot hear. So in the disruption of life, when we see when we see so much violence and we see so much turmoil and we see so much hostility between people, we turn to God, we call upon God, we ask God to intervene, we ask God to resolve things. We ask God that people would lay down their swords and be reconciled to one another. We ask that God would intervene. And God says that he will hear from heaven. The problem is we don't often cry to heaven for that. We don't cry to God to intervene because our iniquities have made a separation between us and God and our sins have hidden God's face from us. Therefore, we don't turn to Him. We turn on each other rather than turning to God. That is the state of the world. And yet He, who is the God of peace, is Himself the author of peace. We read in our call to worship this morning from Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 takes us back before the universe was created. So back before you were born, back before your grandparents were born, back before the Bible came into existence, back before Jesus was, back before the creation, back till there was nothing but God himself, before the foundation of the world. And it describes what happened before the foundation of the world. God thought of you. He thought of his elect. He thought of his people. He thought of you. And in his mind created you. In his mind he saw who you were. What you'd look like. What your inclinations would be. What the things that gave you pleasure would be. Who you are as a person. God 
saw you, and in the seeing of you with his mind, the reality of you one day existing was born, if you will. And it was in eternity that God purposed something. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it. His grace, which he lavished upon us, making known to us the mystery of his will. That is, we get, a, we get an insight into something that happened before there was a, a created order at all. That is, the mystery of his will. According to the purpose which he set forth in Christ. In other words, it becomes clear once Jesus comes into the world. Which he set forth in Christ as a plan. A plan for the fullness of time that is future to us. A plan for the fullness of time to make or to unite again all things in Him, that is, in Christ. To unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. That is God's master plan. It is to make peace between heaven and earth and between all things and to reconcile all things to Himself and to reunite all things in Christ. Now, there's a negative implication, isn't there, to that text. It is that all life now is fractured, broken, disunited. You think of all the things that fracture human relationships, race, color, money, status, class, accent, politics. You want to have a happy Sunday? Don't get into a conversation with anybody in this room about politics. <laughs> That's the reality of the world we live in. And if you add to that the things that we're doing with each other that make peace with each other impossible, the abuses, spouses, children, women, employees, employers, all these relationships are fractured, and humanity has invented ways to cause hurts to people. I was reading this week about the sex trafficking that's going on. I read about a two-year-old child who had been trafficked for sex with adults and whose sexual organs have been damaged for life and cannot be repaired of those who are militating behind the scenes in the political world to bring the age of consent down to the age of 10. Because apparently, men especially, are wanting prepubescent children. That's the world we live in. Sex trafficking. Abuse of many kinds. It's an awful world. There is no peace. Everything is fractured. Everything is broken. Not only that, but we've mismanaged our stewardship of the animal kingdom. 
In Genesis, we're responsible for the stewardship of the animal kingdom. But you drive down a road going towards Virginia, and you pass these enormous factories in which we are mass-producing creatures that we will have on our plate, rubber chicken, creatures that will never see daylight and who will live the entirety of their lives standing in their own feces. We drink milk produced by cows that have never been out of the stable because they're standing in their own waste. We have disregarded our responsibility as stewards to the animal kingdom. We have disregarded our responsibility as stewards to the natural world that God has made. You cannot... This is Genesis 1 and 2. That's where concern for the environment and for creatures and for people begins. There is no peace. There is no peace. And what is God's great plan? Here is the goal of God, the God of peace. It is to unite again. Those of you who are Greek scholars, some of you are seminary students, I want you to look up the word to unite there and you'll find it starts with ana in Greek, which means to unite again or to bring together or reignite or reunite, to bring back to its original state, to reunite all things in Him, that is, in Christ, so that we get to that point where there's peace between strangers as Isaiah speaks about it in Isaiah 61. When there will be no more violence, but there'll be reconciliation. You think of the violence on the streets of our city here, gun crime. I think of the violence on the streets of Britain. Britain is having an absolute, absolute outrageous upturn in knife crime all over the place. You can hardly walk in a city without being attacked by someone with a knife. The violence in our streets, no more violence will be heard in your land, says God. God gives a promise in Isaiah 63 to create a new heavens and a new earth to be a joy. No more a heavy weight to carry, but a joy. No more will be heard the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Isaiah teases that out, this picture of a universe at peace with itself. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The little child will lead them. The The nursing child shall play in the hole of a cobra. They shall not hurt or destroy. And not only animate creation, but inanimate creation. The material world is in a state of unease. There is no peace. The second law of thermodynamics, the entropy of the universe is rising. Uh, Somebody said to me after the first service, here's your illustration for that, Liam. Since you've been here, you've gotten older. Thank you very much for reminding me. But that's what the entropy of the universe is rising means. The second law of thermodynamics is that everything is running down. That means you're getting older too. And the building's getting older and the world's getting older and everything's getting older. 
It's running down because there's no peace. The Apostle Paul can look at this and he can say, as he writes to the Romans, that the whole creation has been subjected to futility. Those are Paul's words. He says, creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation, that is the material universe, is waiting, he says, to be set free from this bondage to decay and to enter into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Everything is in a state of flux and of a lack of peace, and God's plan is one day to bring it back together and reconcile it all in Christ. Don't get a bigger vision than that. This is God's eternal purpose. The goal of peace is to unite all things in Christ. And God's peace comprehends all that is good. All goods here and hereafter are contained in the peace of God. But what is the means to this? We've seen the goal of it. What is the means of it? We've seen the absence of it, but what is the means of rectifying its absence? Well, our peace, the peace of the world and of nature and the universe, rests in Christ. You glance over Ephesians 1, you'll see this repetition. In Him, in the Beloved, in Christ, in Jesus Christ, in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see it in our text. What this God of peace does, He does in relation to our Lord Jesus. And at the end of the two verses, He does this through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Everything is in relation to Christ. So when the prophets were thinking into the future and God was revealing to them what was going to happen in the future, what do the prophets say when when the Messiah comes? In, In Isaiah 7 it says, He'll be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. Two chapters later on in chapter 9, he gives more divine titles for the Messiah. He says he's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace, when Messiah comes, he comes as God bringing peace to the world. When you glance further through the Bible, you you hear this in Psalm 86. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For He, that is God the Lord, will speak peace to His people. Isaiah says, how will God speak peace to the people? Well, God will take on flesh. God will put skin on. God will come amongst us. And He will do this in a human voice in Christ Jesus. How will God speak peace to his people? The Lord will speak, bless his people with peace, it says in Psalm 29. How will he do this? Will he do it through the prophets? God sent his servants, the prophets, to Israel. And he certainly spoke to the people of Israel about their rebellion against him. And you can hear the the heart of God in the language of Isaiah, when, he's, when he recounts God, is saying, oh that, oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river. 
God's saying to Israel, to Israel, and to us, and to anyone else who will hear, if you listen to me, then you would have peace. Then your peace would have flowed like a river, he says. But Israel had been disobedient, just like Adam was disobedient. The prophets, they they gathered around them prophets for hire, people they paid to say what they wanted to hear. People they paid to come and tell them things that were not disturbing, not upsetting. And God, God charges these prophets for hire. You prophets for hire, he says, who say, peace, peace. You can have your best life now. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. You're telling people a lie if you tell them there's no judgment. You're telling people a lie if you tell them that they don't have to face God one day. You're telling people a lie if you tell them there's no heaven and no hell. You're telling people a lie if you tell them that you can have your best life now. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So what is the solution? Isaiah gives us the servant solution. God is going to send one, the servant of the Lord, who will act, who will act as and for his people. This is how he describes him. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, that is, gospel, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. You listen to that and you think, that's Jesus. What did Jesus do when he started his ministry? He started to preach good news, the gospel. The gospel of what? The gospel of the kingdom. The gospel that the king had come into the world, was bringing the kingdom of God into the world. He preached that. Jesus came to bring peace. What does the world do? When it comes into this disjointed world, when the peace of God comes into this world that's disjointed by sin, well, people don't embrace Him. They reject the peacemaker. So it says in Isaiah 53, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes and wounds, we are healed. Humanity lost peace with God at the great rebellion in the garden. And the aftershock continues to this day. And the rebellion that is just beneath the surface of our human race, that rebellion exerted itself supremely when it crucified the Lord of glory. And it's the king, the peacemaker, who weeps over Jerusalem, who says to Jerusalem, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for your peace. They were chasing the, they were choosing the loss of everything over peace with God. 
So where is the peace of the Lord, the peace of God? The peace of the God of peace, seen most clearly. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 tells us that it's seen at the cross. He himself is our peace. You think of the Gentiles. He, the, the Jews were privileged people. They had the prophets. They had Moses. They had Abraham and so on. What, is it, what, what does Jesus do for those who are not Jews? What does he do for the Gentiles? It says, He himself is our peace who has made us both one, who has brought the Gentiles near by the blood of his cross. Near to God, that is. Now we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit, to the Father. So he reconciles Jews and Gentiles. He is our peace who makes both one and has broken down the dividing wall of partition that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, so making peace. What is the ultimate solution? So the problems that exist between people, barriers of race and accent and money and education and any other thing you want to put in there as a barrier between your fellowship with other people on this planet. What does God do? In Christ, in Christ, He reconciles the irreconcilables in Christ. That's the basis, isn't it, for racial reconciliation? That's the basis for class reconciliation? Jesus came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. The peace is the gospel. It's the good news. God is reestablishing peace between people and God, between people and people. That's at the very heart of the gospel. And one day, between people and other creatures and the created order. That's God's plan, God's purpose. That's what he's doing. Paul, writing to the Colossians, puts it like this, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The God of peace makes peace. He offers the terms of peace. You find yourself in church this morning, you, you find yourself perhaps in a state of rebellion against God. For one reason or another, you're angry with God. You're angry with God because of what people have done to you. You're angry with God because the people who did it to you said they were doing it in the name of God. Or perhaps they represented God. But you're angry. So you're pushing against God. Well, the God of peace comes to you this morning and he says, you're pushing against me, but, but it's actually other people you're pushing against who've gotten between me and you. Hear the terms of my peace. He brings you Christ. He brings you the Christ who came into the world, who took on your humanity, who lived in your humanity who was rejected, like perhaps you've been rejected, 
rejected by his own family, perhaps like you've been rejected by your family, who was discriminated against because he came from Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. He comes to you this morning who has entered into the same temptations that you've entered into. And he comes as as the one who went to the cross and died the death in order that you might be reconciled to God. He comes to you this morning. Here's God's terms of peace. And if you embrace those terms of peace, let me tell you what you're embracing. You're embracing the terms of peace that reconcile you to God. But I want you to take a good look around this room this morning and understand that it reconciles you to everybody in this room. Christ is the reconciliation that none of us can achieve in our own strength. He reconciles us to one another in Christ. And as we get that into our heads and hearts, as we ourselves see how that works out in our relationships, as we seek peace and pursue them, so Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Because you can see they're sons of God. They do what God would do. Because God is the God of peace. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that today you would so uh, stir our hearts up to love you and, and to serve you and to follow you, and above all, to embrace your great gift to us in Christ. We pray that we would do so to the praise and honor of your name. Amen.